welcome listeners to another adventure in booth one. Gary and Frank here as always. Hey Frank, today is our 77th episode. Wow. And there is no traditional US anniversary gift for 77 years, <laughs> which I think there should be. I you we know, make you'd one think. Up. But in France, <laughs> oh. the traditional gift is silica. Is that like breast implants? Well, you know, things made out of silica can be glass or ceramics or rubberized kitchen utensils or other durable rubber goods. Uh-huh. I don't know what that might be. Stormy Daniels <laughs> might know something about she that. Might. Oh, are those little packets that are sometimes found in packing material to absorb unwanted moisture? That you accidentally eat if you're not yeah. paying attention. I got you one of those, Frank. Oh, thank you. Happy anniversary. Oh, my God. <laughs> this means so much. Shake that so our listeners can hear that. Yeah, precisely. did give me one. Mm-hmm. I won't ask what product you took this from. Yeah, well, you, you shouldn't, you shouldn't <laughs> okay. ask. You, you probably don't want to know. Okay. Before we get into the meat of the episode here, let's briefly review the Tony Award nominations that came yeah. out last Tuesday. I wanted to mention that Summer, the Donna Summer musical, yeah. uh, which you saw in San Diego in a very pre-Broadway tryout situation. Right. It, it did rather poorly in its reviews. Except, in reviews, yeah. No, it didn't do very well in the reviews. No. But it did get two Tony nominations. It did, and they were two acting nominations. I wanted to mention those. Lachance, uh, who I th- think you did not see. Is that I right? did not. I saw The Understudy, who was wonderful. And so if she's better, she must be terrific. She must play the mature. The uh, oh, Yeah, the, like the current Diva Donna. Yeah. Not Diva. Diva Donna is the second one. She's the current day one. There's a, a young one where she's a young girl in church. Right, right. Then there's one where she's you know, at the top of the game. And then LaShawn's plays the third yeah, one. Yeah, the one at the top of the game is uh, Ariana DuBose. And Her she I did see. also got nominated. She did, and she was fabulous. Amazing. I think the ultimate ultimate comment about the reviews were Donna Summer deserves better. Um, <laughs> they just thought, you know, yeah. there was, it was yeah. serviceable. Yeah. It was, you know, okay. But she has such a great catalog of songs. Yeah. She lived such an interesting life. I think the show was a little bit sanitized because her family or whatever was involved with it. She's molested as a child by the choir director at her church when she's little. They kind of gloss over that. And those would be some very strong, you know, dramatic moments. I, I felt they were glossing over things when I sure. saw it as well. Sure. But the performances were great. The songs are great. And it's selling very well. People are going to see it. Apparently, so. it's very popular with the tourist crowd. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I'm happy about those two nominations. Let's just review a couple of the categories. You know, I printed out the categories. Six pages of categories at the Tony Awards. <laughs> what do they, they nominate everything now? Uh, pretty much. Best, best usher. <laughs> Best audience member. Uh, Let's just review a couple of the more significant categories. Best musical, The Band's Visit, which I saw. Which I loved and you liked. I liked from the front row. Um, You loved from the balcony. Yeah, I did. The mezzanine. Yeah. Frozen, of course. Haven't seen that. Mean Girls, the Tina Fey show. People like that and the reviews were good. And, And SpongeBob SquarePants, the Broadway musical. Which I saw. It's a very long title. It's really kind of a kid's show. It's very colorful, and they're having a lot of fun with it. But I was shocked it got so many nominations. Yeah, Absolutely it did. Absolutely shocked. It did. And best play, The Children, Farinelli and the King, Harry Potter and the Cursed Child, Junk, which is now long closed, which I saw, mm. and Latin History for Morons. 
Yeah, I love um, John Leguizamo, so I'm really yes, happy for him. As do I. And special Tony Award this year for Lifetime Achievement in the Theater are going to Andrew Lloyd Webber mm. and our pal Cheetah Rivera. Yay. Yeah. Yeah, Cheetah. That's going to be very She's exciting. She's got the ultimate life in the theater, I must and say. Special Tony Awards are going to the aforementioned John Leguizamo for that piece ah. and for Bruce Springsteen mm-hmm. for his long-running musical I have a friend who cavalcade is, yeah, through friend, the life of Bruce. I have a friend who's seeing that next weekend. A couple other things I wanted to mention. Uh, Anne Roth, who's a costume designer, longtime costume designer on Broadway. Oh, what a day she had. Three nominations for three separate shows. Wow. Three Tall Women, The Iceman Cometh, and Carousel. Could those be more different? Wow. <laughs> she got nominated for all of those. Good for uh, her. And uh, I worked with these two, Jules Fisher and uh, Peggy Eisenhower. They're lighting designers. I, I worked with them years and years ago. They've been around forever. And they, uh, they got two nominations as well for The Iceman Cometh and for the musical Once on this Island. Ah, great. Yeah. So congratulations to them. The last person I'm going to mention is director of a musical, our pal David Cromer for The Band's Visit. I'm so excited about that. You know, Cromer's coming to town to direct something at Writer's Theater. He's doing Next to Normal Oh, uh, in, I think it's May next year so at the end of their next season and we're going to try like heck to have him on the show oh great yeah, yeah he, he's really very loyal to Chicago he comes he'll do shows in New York but he always comes back good guy Cromer and a talented mm. talented director well listen we have a guest in the booth today we do. and uh, without further ado our guest is a very talented writer storyteller and theater artist we went to see his marvelous new play mm. called To Catch a Fish yes. at Timeline Theater just a couple of days ago, and we got to go to the fancy opening night party, mm-hmm. the wine bar swanky. party that was fa- fancy and swanky. <laughs> we welcome playwright Brett Nephew to the studio. Thanks for taking the time out of your busy schedule to be with us on this uh, spring Saturday, Brett. You're very welcome. I'm happy to be here. Uh, we are so pleased to have you. Let's start with To Catch a Fish. Frank, you and I both loved this play. Oh, we did. I, I thought it was it was fantastic. As I did thought our it was producer. Really great. Although I was confused at first, I thought it was going to be a takeoff on to catch a thief. Don't but, say it. But with fish. Don't, don't say it. And it turns out it wasn't. So it was kind of a pleasant surprise. I've heard that joke before. So <laughs> have you? Yes. First time on this podcast. First time on right. this podcast. <laughs> first of all, tell us a little bit about what the play is about. Sure. And how you came to write it, and what first attracted you to this true story of this character, well, gentleman named uh, Chauncey Rice. I was working with Timeline Theater Company in a playwriting collective that they had formed in 2012-2013. And Ben Thiem, who is the literary manager of uh, Timeline Theater Company, he had us uh, submit ideas for uh, a play. And I submitted three. We all submitted three ideas. And we met, Ben and I met later, and he liked the, uh, the one about that it would be inspired by Chauncey's story. He liked that one the best. And so... I went off and started getting some information and working on it. In the meantime, Ben had contacted the reporters who had first reported about Chauncey's story in uh, the Milwaukee paper and had... This whole play takes yes, place in Milwaukee in like 2013-ish, mm-hmm. right? Exactly. And I was able to interview, and actually all of our, all the playwrights in the collective were able to interview the, the, the writers and, or excuse me, the, the reporters, and... It just sort of started from there. They were so uh, welcoming with their information, and the story was so compelling that uh, I, I just jumped right in. And jumped right in, in in this case means that I started working on this play around 2012, 2013, and uh, took this long to sort of get it to the place that we wanted it to be. 
because of the way that timeline works, they are, uh, they produce history plays. And the amount of research, the amount of time, working with the collective, working with actors, working with Ron, Ron O.J., who was the director, uh, working with a cast, developing, developing. It took a while to get it to, in good shape. Were you working with Timeline while you were writing? Oh, the whole time. So you knew this was going to be a Timeline production? Well, we, I didn't know they were going to produce it. The Collective, we write for with the idea that, uh, t- w- uh, with Timeline's uh, mission statement in our heads. Ah. But we don't write for production. We just write to, to write. And this is a group of Chicago-based playwrights, mm-hmm. right, exactly. that they started this initiative with, and they promise to help you develop it and stage readings and uh, provide space for you to do these readings and bring in cast members and things like that? Exactly. And mostly we would meet well, about once a month and they would give us dinner. We have like pizza or something oh, like that, which was and, and it's worth food. it. I, I may know. have to write a play. It was incentive to show up. And so we would all get there and we would read each other's work. We would bring in pages like uh, you would know if it was your day to bring in pages. And we'd bring in, bring in pages and we'd hear it. And then go from there. We'd get feedback. And the great thing about the collective is that the playwrights that were a part of it knew how the story was progressing, had heard scenes, had heard different drafts of scenes, had lots of input. And also we ended up reading the same characters a lot. And I think that influenced voice, certainly influenced um, how we viewed the plays. And Ben and uh, PJ Powers, the artistic director, they were very involved in how the plays were sort of being shaped, even... They weren't telling us how to write them, but on a periphery sort of way that they were involved in saying, you all are doing a great job Yeah, and and kept us there. So anyway, I should say what the, <laughs> what the play's about. Yeah, and yeah, for our listeners, give us a, a little short synopsis sure. of the play. By the way, it, it is running at Timeline now through July 1st, so you have a long time to see it. It's playing mm-hmm. well, well into the summer. You could go to TimelineTheater.com for more information about it. But tell us but a the little th- bit yeah, about But the theater, it. we should warn you, only holds 99 seats. Yeah. So there are a lot of performances, but not a lot of actual chairs. No, there aren't a lot of ba- actual chairs, and it's kind of going very well. So uh, if you want tickets, you should probably do there you that. There you go. Do that now. The, the play is about a, a young man in Milwaukee who uh, he suffered brain damage as, a, as an infant, and uh, he gets wrapped up with these guys who are operating this illegal shop, the shop that it's uh, selling either stolen goods or trying to get people to sell stolen goods for them. And he is looking for some place to be himself. He's trying to find a family outside of his family because he just can't seem to fit in anywhere. The play is mostly about his family, his uh, girlfriend, his cousin, his grandmother, and then the people running the shop also. And I, it's weird because it, I can give away some. Yeah. No, don't, <laughs> don't give away, away too much. 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 Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and those things you mentioned, we find out pretty much in the first 10 minutes. So yeah. um, that's the basic setup of what's going on. Yeah. Sure. It, eventually, it's a play about, if I may, I think, it's a play about family and love yeah. and mm-hmm. support of family in a way. Uh, the grandmother is very much significant of that point, I think. But despite all the other plot points and the things that go on, I think basically that's what I took away from it. Frank, how about you? What were your, yeah. what were your final impressions? I like that because, I mean, with the grandmother, you had tough love. With the, uh, the shop people, you had fake love. 
you had somewhat romantic love between him and the girlfriend. And then I think there was genuine love between him and his cousin, although that was pretty fractured contentious, at times. Contentious. Contentious Very love. contentious love. So different kinds of love going on. This yeah. is kind of what I took away from him. But he's always, you know, like he had friends when he met these people. And he was like, these are my friends. And then people meet them and they're like, oh, are you sure these are your friends? He's like, yes, yes, they're my friends. Yeah. And he's true to them really to the very last minute. I think that's right because love can be so complicated. And often we see in stories this one kind of love somebody's trying to get or this one kind of love that everybody sort of shares. And I don't, you know, you look at a story, especially a story like this, and that can't be true because what do you choose? What love do you follow? What love do you seek out? Right. And what do you need based on where you are in your life? Where Terry is, the lead character, Terry, where he's at in his life, he needs a certain kind of love right now because he's getting older. He wants to move on. He wants to grow up. The pitfalls that go along with that we can relate to in, in our own lives. And uh, I think that's something that I really felt as I was working on it, that I could relate to his journey, even though it's out, his specific journey is outside in my own life in, in many right, ways. Right, Well, and he's also very vulnerable. So when people come along offering him a kind of you know, love and respect, he's going to go for it. The same thing with the girlfriend, Rochelle, Rochelle was that Rochelle, her name? Rochelle, yeah. Yeah, with Rochelle. And that's also a fractured relationship as well. I mean, there's some lovely moments, there's some difficult moments. And so he just doesn't know how to deal with any of these different kinds of relationships he's developed. And and it's fascinating for us to watch that. No, and in the same way that uh, love can stop you, yeah. it does stop him. He's got uh, uh, IDD. Uh, he's got an uh, intellectual disorder. So love stops him in that way because he's not exactly sure what it is. And he, there's a section during the end of Act 1 where that question, actually that specific mm-hmm. question comes up asking to define love. And he basically says it's, it's, this, it's this, standing right here next to you, talking and, and um, having dinner together and watching TV together. That's how he defines it, because he's found somebody he can be comfortable around. Mm-hmm. But it, Rochelle, his, his, his girlfriend, his girlfriend, believes it needs to be something else deeper than that, that it is like family. And so that's where the disconnects begin, mm-hmm. or that's one of the disconnects, I should say. Mm-hmm. That character you're talking about is, uh, his name is Terry, and he's played by a wonderful actor mm-hmm. named Gino Walker. Everyone in this cast is absolutely superb, and they're perfect for their parts. Yeah. Were they involved in workshopping the production and helping you develop it as it went along through this Playwrights Collective? Uh, most of them were, yeah. We had people switching in and out depending on schedule and because it was years in development. So most of them were there. Uh, Gino was, was there for quite a while. It's He's he's a big guy. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it's, it's he hard. takes up a lot of room in that little space, room. yeah. And he's a fantastic actor. So so when you find somebody who's a, uh, who fits that character so well, we hung on to him really tight, um, and we weren't gonna we, were, we didn't want that, him to go anywhere. But then I'll also say that uh, the guys playing who, who the guys who playing the shop owners, Jay and Steve, they came along later. I've known Steve, Wa- Steve Walker who plays uh, Dex, one of the shop owners. I've known him for twenty years, oh, and, wow. I kn- and I just met Jay so during uh-huh. the course of this production. And so just like in classic Chicago theater, you pull from everywhere. Sure. And uh, we ended up with a cast that n- knew each other and didn't know each other, just like the people in the play. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't yeah, often mention true. everybody in the cast, but I am going to go through the cast list. Uh, you mentioned Stephen, that's Stephen Walker. You mentioned Jay, Jay Worthington, also Angie White. The grandmother is played by Linda Bright Clay, mm-hmm. uh, who is wonderful. Yeah. Tiffany Addison uh, plays Rochelle, Terry's uh, girlfriend, and Al Jaleel McGee 
which is the greatest name ever. It is. It really uh, is. He plays Terry's cousin, oh, and he's great. phenomenal. He is great. Powerful performance. Mm-hmm. Reminded me of a young Denzel in a way mm-hmm. out there on stage. He was fantastic. Uh, yeah. I would agree. And he is uh, kind of a new <laughs> to acting, if you can believe really? it. We learned this at the opening night party yeah. that he's done a few plays. In fact, uh-huh. he did Breach yes. at Victory Gardens, which we saw several months ago and loved. He's a non-equity actor, and he's making his way... That won't last long. (laughs) Well, this is what I'm thinking. He's making his way through the Chicago theater. I understand he moved to Washington for a while, Washington, D.C. His family Um, moved to someplace in the South. Well, he's a former Marine, too. Yeah. uh, You can tell. That (laughs) makes perfect sense. Yeah, you can can tell. And and I would agree. I I work with... uh, and I said this to him the other Well, no, I didn't say it to him. I said this to somebody else who probably told him. But one of my good friends and one of my collaborators is Michael Shannon from Red Orchid Theater. Mm. And AJ reminds me so much of Mike in that way where I can tell Mike something and he will do that thing, but he'll also do it in a way that is completely surprising to me. And then every night he'll do that thing, but he'll do it in a different way. Wow. And I saw that and I went, I don't think he's going to be around here much longer. Or he'll be back... But he'll be going back and forth. And then they're all fantastic. And AJ, AJ and I, um, he helped a lot with that character for me. Because that character, we, we, be, we began to discover that he is the writer of this story in some ways. Uh. That he is the outsider looking in. He's trying to analyze exactly what's going on. He's analyzing the story. He's analyzing what's happening to him, what's happening to Grandma. He's pushing the action forward. And as a surrogate... Sometimes at playwrights, we find this, who's our surrogate in this play? Uh-huh. And he became the surrogate for the writer within this mm. environment. And it was, a, it was pretty fascinating to hear. So it allowed that character, just from what, thank goodness for him in this play and his ability, it allowed him to be that. Because um, that doesn't always happen. Your surrogate sometimes isn't so great. True, <laughs> true. Well, I, I would say run, don't walk to see To Catch a Fish at Timeline Theater. You mentioned a Red Orchid Theater. You're an ensemble member there, and you have been for a number of years. What is special about working with the ensemble at a Red Orchid in their relatively tiny space of 80 seats? We mentioned 99 seats yeah. here at Timeline. Red Orchid is even smaller than that. Do you find that that intimacy and that closeness of participants and actors, do you find that that sparks your inspiration? And do you write differently for that space? Uh, yes. All of those things that you said. Uh, the answer is yes. Uh, could the, you elaborate? Oh, of course, I, 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 I'll do that right now. Uh, what if I said no? No, uh, yeah, that's you, not to be anything. I, um, the uh, space... And then sometimes it's not even 80 seats. It depends on what the, how big the set is or what the configuration is. Sometimes we get 65 in there. But I do write for that intimacy. And you, it shows, I think, in To Catch a Fish, too, that, that the, the scenes, they're all outside, and we need that intimacy. And we, so we put them over here and put them over here. But there's people right up on folks' knees sometimes in To Catch a Fish, which is from being at Red Orchid. For me, being at Red Orchid so many times, I've had, I think, 10 world premieres at Red Orchid over the years. And... That intimacy produces uh, a provocation that I don't always get in larger spaces that I really hunger for. And what it also does is it challenges the actors and it challenges the audience 
to communicate in a really sort of dangerous, interesting way that uh, a human standing next to you speaking is very, very different from uh, in, looking on your computer screen or looking on your phone or your TV or whatever you do. Or looking uh, at him from the balcony or, or something. Or looking at him from the yeah. balcony, for sure, that they're right there. And I did a play at Red Orchid called The Opponent that was about boxing, about two, two, a, a boxer and a trainer. We had a boxing ring in the space. And... Two seats that were on the corner was in a diamond uh, sort of shape with the point out in the audience almost, and they were either side. You would get hit by sweat uh, <laughs> from Kamal Bolden, uh, who was uh, playing the boxer in that play. And uh, people, they really, they really yeah. you would think they may not, but they really did like that. So that sort of intimacy is... I, I find it exhilarating. Frank, you chose a front row seat at Timeline. It's open seating, it's by open the way, seating, and so you went, get there early. I think I'm going to sit here, and I yeah. thought, are, are you crazy? You're going to have your feet right in it. Well, you got spat upon a couple of times. I got a little some spittle once in a while. That was probably Steve. It could have been, it, yeah. It, it was exactly <laughs> Steve. A couple of gals, too, were kind of projecting, oh, but they, yeah. I don't mind that. I you don't know, mind it at all. They say that Olivia... Olivia used to spit an awful well, lot and in when his it's, younger career because of the diction. Yeah. You know? But I love being in that front row seat. I mean, I had to keep moving my feet out of the way because one of the nice things about front row is you get leg room, but not really because they're walking by they you. Come, and, yeah. yeah. Nevertheless, it was like, I mean, they literally were closer to me than the two of you are right now, and you're sitting right next to me at times. I felt like I was like another person, like a passerby who happened to be watching, and I was invisible so I could l- listen in on the conversations. But it was very, very immediate, and I loved it. It didn't occur to me until you just said it, Brett. Yes, all of the scenes take place outside. Yeah, this all, entire they play takes place outdoors. Well, you got Rochelle in the window at one point, but then she comes out. Yeah, yeah but never, nothing seconds. ever happens nothing inside happens her apartment. There, no. It all happens outside right, her right. apartment, and yeah. she can. And the set is beautifully that's, constructed that's, too. Yeah. So that you've got windows and doors and entrances and Regina, stuff. Yeah. It's, it's brilliant the mm-hmm. way that that's constructed it really because is. it didn't even strike me. But now that I think about it, it makes a real difference. I mm-hmm. will say that that's a that the designer certainly knew that I'd done that, and I knew I'd done that when when we created. I'm like, oh no, how are we going to make these locations? And we had to be really creative about it and and suggest them. And so a lot of the conversation was about what's in Terry's head, our lead character's head, and what does he see and what does he perceive. So shapes and locations and sort of uh, things that he might recognize. So like a window, a staircase, a chair, a table, uh, a doorway. Those are things he would recognize, landmarks for him. And uh, beyond that, we really didn't need that much because we also wanted a you know, a you are there sort of yeah. sense to it. Uh, for the audience. The other thing you did that was nice was Terry's pretty much on his bicycle the whole time, and so that gave an outdoor feel to it and gave it a reason for you to have the outdoor scenes because he biked over to her house, biked over to Grandma's, biked over to the shop, and so that was a nice device to make everything that was outside make perfect sense that it was outside. And that comes directly from Chauncey Wright. Chauncey inspired that, and the, the, this, the story that inspired the play that took place in Milwaukee, Chauncey... He rode his bike everywhere. That's how this happened. Uh-huh. That's how he was dragged into this or pulled into this or, or coerced into this, is maybe a better word, is that he rode his bike everywhere. And so we knew that we wanted to have, or I knew from a long time ago, I really wanted to have that bike because I saw his bike. I met Chauncey, and I saw his bike, and, I, and it was a beat-up bike. Uh-huh. <laughs> and it, it was so iconic for this story. And so the really cool thing that Ron did and that we all talked about eventually, is that our center hub of the story is, is like a bicycle wheel. We have the center of the room, and it spins around, and he spins around it. The characters all spin around it. 
and the audience is part of that wheel. Ah, and so that's yeah. another reason for the way it was created. So those exteriors are, are for that reason, too, because any interiors are closed off from the wheel. And right, you don't you just take your bike in the yeah, house. Yeah, we're, we're pretty arty over there, it seems. <laughs> yeah, you're very, very clever. Yeah. Now, you teach, Brett, uh, playwriting and screenwriting yes. at Northwestern University. Uh, what do you teach as the difference between those two? Are those Obvious. two separate classes? Oh, yeah. And, okay. and TV yeah. writing, too. I teach, yeah. I teach a lot of genre classes, too. I teach, like, horror writing. I teach dramedy writing. I teach sci-fi. So it's really specific how to build those structures, what uh, you need to uh, pay attention to when you're working on those types of stories. I'm teaching the procedural, writing the procedural next quarter. They all, it's all different. It's all different. It's just knowledge. It's just more knowledge. It's like different variations of science or different variations of math or uh, different types of literature. It's, it's, it's all, uh, they're all in the same section at the library or at the bookstore, but they're all different books. So uh, it's, I I think of it as, I think of it that way. And certainly between playwriting and screenwriting, playwriting, you can write structurally or our content wise you can almost write anything with a screenplay it's a bit different there's a it's a strong visual world the storytelling is incredibly important character too but storytelling is it looms large structure is a, a big deal not that those things aren't important when you're writing a play but you can also you know mix it up in all sorts of ways that are more difficult with play with with screenwriting, and don't you control the audience's eye a lot more in completely? A, in oh, a screenplay? totally. Yeah. Yes, very much. And and we talk about that a lot, especially in genre, because if I'm writing a horror script, it's about sound, it's about visual, it's about the emotional impact, it's about metaphor, all of those things that are incredibly important with horror, uh, modern horror, right now, very much. Mm-hmm. You grew up in, or actually, you went to school in Iowa. I grew up in Iowa, too. Uh, in Newton. Yeah, I grew up in Newton, Iowa. Yes, I did. Home of Maytag, is that right? Not anymore, no. Not for, not for years. Anymore. It's all gone. But when you were growing up, it was the home of it Maytag. It was the home of Maytag. I, I graduated at Maytag Bowl at Maytag Park, uh, <laughs> where Maytag Pool was. <laughs> wow. And uh, yeah, all of those things were happening. Little known fact, the dog in the Maytag commercials is named Newton. Yep, it is. Oh, that's true. Did you know that? Frank? I did not know that. That is but true. But I do now. I, I always love to impart new knowledge <laughs> to you. Well, I have a lot of a lot of trivia floating around in my head, and I will add that to yes. the bunch. I think you and I are the only two people that know that. No, well, <laughs> but it now could be. there's now me. There's three. Well, the Maytag people. <laughs> know a lot that. of Maytag people know that. Yeah. yeah. Did you start your career as an actor? I understand that in your young young childhood you played a donkey in a production of something about the wizard of oz it, was it wasn't the wizard it of was oz. the patchwork girl of oz the patchwork girl of oz it's one of uh, frank Baum's many many sequels yeah. yes exactly and i played the wise old donkey uh-huh. you see there there was the the owl who was not and i was the the juxtaposition or whatever the whatever but anyway yes <laughs> i wore a mask a donkey mask so i don't think anybody could even understand my lines i could hear them really well yeah this is a big plastic donkey mask and i was in the newspaper cool on the cover mm. of the newton daily news so did you start out your uh, young adult career as an actor i did i did i wanted to be an actor i was an actor through college too but i when i went to the university of iowa it's a strong writing school, uh, but a, a really interesting playwriting department. And I met some incredible writers there, too. Naomi Wallace went to school. I oh, went to school wow. with Naomi Wallace and Rebecca Gilman mm. and uh, a bunch of other st- folks, Peter Yulian. Some great playwrights were there. And we had in- great guests, too. And so I was surrounded, not at the time I had no idea, surrounded by these writers who would be big deals in theater, in American theater. And I really wanted to write. I was also involved in uh, something that people do here too, I guess, uh, No Shame Theater, which was uh, 
three to five minute scripts. As long as you brought it in, as long as they kept under those, you could do anything. And so I started writing for this No Shame Theater short what sketches yeah. for myself to act in. And then I was, and then I realized, no, I, I'm not as good as the, the MFA actors <laughs> I can get or the undergrad actors I can get. And so we started doing. I started writing for that and just kept writing and writing, and those turned into plays. And and it just kind of going from there. Who are your favorite playwrights? Do you have people that you take inspiration from? Oh, completely. For a long time, it was, it was Sam Shepard, and mostly because when I was in college, I read Buried Child, and there's a monologue by Vince where he mentions Iowa, and it was surprising to me that anybody, especially a New York playwright, would know where that Iowa existed, <laughs> and I, I, I was like, I want to write about this, and also the, the tone and the feel and the story in there, I, I, I really recognized it, and, and certainly I mentioned Rebecca Gelman, who's one of my best friends for my entire life. She inspires me. Her writing inspires me all the time. But the big one for me is Harold Pinter and has always been Pinter. And I don't know if it's the, if it's the pauses, if it, not just the pauses, as everybody pays attention to are the pauses, but it's the menace and it's the characters, it's the family that, that is a part of this and, and this, the, the subtext too. I thought about Pinter a lot when I was working on To Catch a Fish, actually. <laughs> Chekhov and Pinter, again and again and again, kept occurring to me um, with this play, uh, strangely. But when it came to the, the guys who run the shop, as Pinter characters, for sure. I, I can absolutely see that. Yeah, what's interesting, yeah, I can see it too. It's Pinter without the pauses, because yeah. To Catch a Fish is not pausy in the slightest. It crackles right along. It, cr- it does yeah. crackle. And yeah, it really does. Some and of the yet, scenes are quite short. They are. And, and they just snap by, and then you're on to the next right. thing. But you do get incredibly strong characters that make an impression immediately. I think that's one of the highlights of the show is the characters. Obviously, you've got good actors, but you've got to have good characters. Yeah. And, and yeah. The, the great thing about Pinter, too, is that he, thinking about him gave me the license to do weird things with the characters, too. If, if one of them needs to sing, which one does for a moment, I'm not mm-hmm. really won't spoil anything by that, but just for a moment, in a menacing way, it's okay, because it's within this world. And I think the pauses ended up in the transitions, actually. the our, our extended pinter pauses of just life moving ended up in the transitions. That's something that Ron and I talked about a lot. Ron uh, O.J. Parson, who's exactly, the director. Who's yes. the director, is just how, those, how we move through these. And I'll also say this play... Is I, <laughs> this is going to sound incredibly silly, but one of my own plays re, uh, uh, was a big influence on this play. It's a play I wrote called American Dead that, uh, that was produced at American Theater Company, oh boy, about 10, 15 years ago, directed by Ed Sobel. The character Louie in that, in that play is very similar to the character Terry, but those were all interiors, but broken in the same, in the same way. So I looked at that play a lot to see how this works. And Lastly, I'll say that you're, you're totally right. Short scenes and uh, how they move really quickly. We really talked, we thought about how a cinematic approach to this play mm, yeah. would work. And I really wanted that feel too. And I think that's why the You Are There feeling comes across is that it does have a, have a documentary aspect it to does. it too. And that was really important to us. So it was, I was allowed to write short scenes within long scenes and that there's just brief snippets of some things. Well, you know, that may lend itself to confusion a little bit, but... Mm. Uh, I I don't care. I don't think it did, and I think <laughs> good for you. Yeah, I don't think it did, and I also think that if people pay any attention to their program, they know it's based on an actual event. So the documentary feel is more than appropriate. Yeah, and timeline is wonderful too because they have their lobby display, oh, and if right. you want to go out and get more information, and they have an app, and they have a website, and they do videos, <laughs> and they have everything, and they are f- uh, full of information. We have two dramaturgs. We have all these people working on 
the information that backs this up. Let me ask you this, Brett. If you could have had any other profession outside of the theater, assuming that you had like the skills to perform it, what would you have liked to have done? I have no answer for that. That is an excellent, <laughs> that is a fair answer to a That's fair a great question. Because, because I don't, I mean, I, it, I, because I've been doing it so long and all I've ever wanted to do with, is this, is all I've ever, ever, it's all I've ever done. Since I was in high school, I wrote my first play when I was 16 or 17 years old, that this is, this is all I, this is all, it, this is it, this is it. And I think it's just the puzzle in, in my mind, the way it works. I, I've had you know, a, a series of just like all artists, bunches and bunches of jobs um, before um, the writing started paying that were terrible. That I knew that if I got jobs of doing things I didn't want to do, then I wouldn't find something that would make me want to do it. That's good. That's uh, good point. Then some of the jobs were fine, some of the jobs were not so fine, but it, it kept me from going somewhere else. And it just kept me sort of in the profession, in the industry, in, in my head in a way that uh, didn't make me think about anything else. And besides that, I don't think I have the capacity to do, to do much else than, than teach. I love teaching and I love writing. Those two things, I, I, can, I can do those two things. And that's what you do do. So. That's exactly what I do. And mm-hmm. I'm like, you know, I'm a dad too. I like being a dad. So I guess there's a third thing. And a husband. And a husband, I can do that too. Okay, yeah. there's lots of things I do. Yeah. Um, I like to eat too. <laughs> <laughs> and breathe. And, and breathe. Like. <laughs> you, um, you met your wife, Kristen, at school, yeah, at college, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. You've been married for... 26 years. 26 wow. years. 26 years next month. Wow. Congratulations. Wow. Yeah, thank yeah. you. I've been married a total of 26 years. <laughs> oh, with multiple. If you just add them up, it's about that. Oh, there you go. It's getting close. Okay, yeah. I'm not quite. They all count. It's never going to. It's never going to be years, 77. Yeah. Oh, the, yeah, right. Technically, they all count. Absolutely. <laughs> Have you ever had a hankering to direct your own work? I did direct my first play. Actually, Rebecca Gowan was supposed to direct it, and then something came up and she couldn't do it, so I, I, I ended up halfway through having to direct it myself and it was at Iowa. It was a play called Outlaws and Frames about Butch Cassidy and Sundance Kid and halfway through the play he and uh, are those two and all the other characters turned into puppets. So anyway, <laughs> and, oh, and it was a musical. So um, I had to direct that. It was like a synth musical. It was, very, it was very fun and very funny. I directed that and I also directed a play for the Iowa Playwrights Festival that I directed Joe Russo. Do you know who Joe Russo? You know who Joe yes. Russo is. Yes, yes. The director of our, our Infinity War here. I yeah. directed him in a play where he played one of the Marx Brothers, too. So uh, that I think I got enough directing. Those two, those two projects, I said, I, I don't think I can get any weirder than that. I think I'll stop and let somebody else do the, the more serious work. <laughs> Have you always gotten along with directors? I mean, has there ever been one that you were like, oh, you know, you're ruining my play? Uh, that, sure. Okay. I don't want to name any names. Yeah, Are you speaking from personal experience, Frank? Uh, no, have you no. been, ever been accused of that, <laughs> ruining someone's play? No, I've never actually known an author that I've worked on a show. Oh, oh, I see. When I did Hair, Michael Butler came to see it. He was the person who initiated Hair at the very you know beginning of the the start of that particular show. He was of the Butlers of Oakbrook. Mm. So he, I guess he was more of a producer than a writer. That's as close as I got. I want to give a plug and a shout out to one other show that I saw this past week. Oh. I went to a, well, they call it a concert reading. It's semi-costumed. They stand in front of music stands. Okay. And it's like a reading of a new play. However, this was not a new play. This was Hay Fever by oh, Noel Coward. That's a great play. Wonderful show. Wonderful play. Very funny. But it's done by Shaw Chicago. 
And they've been around for 26 years, wow. 28 years, something like that. A long time. I had inexplicably never been to one of their productions. They're fantastic. They uh, really are. But this was, it was wonderfully done. It was beautifully directed. There was a little bit of staging, not much. People crossed here and there. There was a one or two costume pieces like a hat. And generally, they had their scripts in front of them. But to the credit of these wonderful actors and their really top-notch Chicago actors, they were pretty much off book. Oh, wow. They just had their scripts there for reference at, at times. And I enjoyed it so very much. And I wanted to give a big shout-out and a plug to Shaw Chicago. They perform at the Ruth Page Theater. Are uh, all their shows on, stage readings? They are all oh, stage readings. And so they they're call them, like this. And they call them concert readings. Okay. Next season, they're doing all Shaw uh-huh. plays. Uh, and but they where's don't it located, do. did you say? Yeah, they do it at the uh, Ruth Page Theater at 1016 North Dearborn, okay. right in the uh, River North. Mm. They've been there for quite a number of years. That building's been there for quite a number of years, too. Uh, Chicago Shakespeare started yeah, out so in that Yeah, so you got Shakespeare building, and Shaw right next uh, to each other. Anyway, a big shout-out. One of the reasons I, I want to plug them and encourage people to go is that they do not get reviewed. The Tribune and the Sun-Times refuse to send reviewers to a staged or concert reading oh, really? type, type hmm. presentation, which I think is a shame because people will enjoy these so, so very much. Yeah, yeah. You should try that sometime. I should. Yeah, I will. Let me go back to something that Frank asked you about directors. Sure. So you're not particularly uh, hankering to direct your own stuff. You're not like a late Edward Albee or um, no way. Sam Shepard directed his they things did. at times. Yeah, Even did. Harold Pinter jumped in at mm-hmm. the director's chair. I gather that you're a big fan of the collaborative process. Big, big fan of that, yes. And have you come to loggerheads with directors before on your not pieces? A, not in a big, big way. I don't think that's ever happened. And and um, I'd like to think of myself as a good collaborator, and I think that comes from teaching, too, that I try to be patient. And I, and, and if it starts to happen, I mean, I, I will be the first to admit that I was an angry young man back when I was a young man, and so that's changed that I'm not as angry young man. But I'm also, I've been in uh, bands for 25 years. Yeah, and you play in a band play now, in a band. as a matter oh, cool. of fact, right? Wow. Yeah, I, I'm, well, I'm actually in a band called The Last Afternoons, my band of 20 years, uh, Dad's Magazine. We broke up not too long ago, and the guitarist and I formed another band with some with some other folks, and our new album's coming out soon. But anyway, that's my plug. And but uh, <laughs> what, What's the name of the band again? The Last Afternoons. The Last Afternoons. Yes. Is there a name of the album? Uh, the We haven't decided yet. I, I shouldn't say we... Okay. I I have a name I'd like to use, but it's a group thing. But what I was going to say is the collaboration that exists when you're in a band about uh, the songs. Because I write a lot of the lyrics, and my, the guitarist he writes the uh, the songs, and then we bring them to the rest of the band, and we collaborate how they how they'll go. It, it requires a lot of listening, a lot of trying things out, and people saying, ah, "I don't know if that's going to work." But you know, there's never a this is it's this way or nothing. It's just music. It, it's how something is going to sound. And I try to bring that to the way I work in rehearsal. I don't want other people to have to work like me. I just want to work like that myself. So if I can be that person, if I can be open, can have a, if I can have those conversations, if, I, if directors are the ones who allow me to speak, and I'm, I mean, I've been doing this a long time, so I know when not to say things to actors. I know when to not say things to, to designers or, or to keep my mouth shut. Well, not always. Sometimes I just 
can't. But uh, <laughs> but some I know the but, feeling. Yeah, but my, most of the time I'm I'm pretty good about about that. But also I can use my experience and the time doing this to make sure that I'm heard. That doesn't always happen with playwrights, to make sure that they're heard. And um, I'm a strong advocate of, of the collaboration process, including the playwright in a strong way, so that it works that way. I've had a couple shows in, in London and developed plays with Royal Court and with uh, Royal Shakespeare, and that process is like that, that I wanted to want it to feel that way, where everybody's talking, everybody's talking, everybody's talking, and trying to get to the heart of what you're doing, trying to get to the art, make the art better, everybody. And it, everybody's on equal footing. You know, the director's in charge, but still wants to facilitate that conversation, and that's important to me. So that's why I don't really direct, because I, I like where I'm at. I like my role. I really enjoy my role. If you work so collaboratively with the people, like I, I assume with To Catch a Fish, you were up until the very end, you were working with them, right? Or, oh, yeah. Yeah, so then you're kind of directing, sort of in a way, because you're involved in the whole process, and I assume the director's bouncing ideas off of you mm-hmm. as a director. Yes, and I think that it's mostly like, like Ron and I would have conversations about things that were happening when it comes to designs, when it comes to the acting, for sure, how the play, the shape of the play. But I will also say, we had two dramaturgs on this project, uh, Regina Victor and uh, Tanya Palmer. But Tanya Palmer I've known for 10, 15 years uh, when she first uh, was a dramaturg for my play Gas for Less at the Goodman. She's one of my best friends and has dramaturged a lot of my plays since. And so there's a shorthand there uh-huh. that she and I can do. And this is, a, this is a long process. She's been the dramaturg on this play for a, a really long time. That helps a lot because the director can go do his thing, in this case, Ron, his thing, and Tiny and I can go sit in a corner and hash something out. Yeah, and then she can, yeah. gives me notes. I can make changes and then send them send them to Ron and, and, and uh, see what's up with that. But if the director trusts that relationship, and that's not always the case, but if they trust that relationship that Tanya and I have, then a lot more work can get done and a lot, a lot more quickly, too. Yeah, I can see that. Is there a long history of storytelling in your family? Where are your relatives from? My dad's Cajun, and my mom is Puerto Rican. And uh, so, yes. The answer answer would be yes. Moving on. (laughs) Exactly. So, yes. Somebody asked me about this the other day. My grandmother told a lot of stories, and one of the first plays I ever wrote contained one of her stories, this ghost story she had about seeing this ghost in Mesilla, New Mexico, and I would make, when I was a kid, I would make her tell that story again and again and again and again, it always freaked me out. My mom was there, she would tell it too, but both my mom and dad are wonderful storytellers, so it, it, it just was, it just surrounded me, and I, and also, I was thinking about this too, I would go to family gatherings and my dad's brother is married to my mom's cousin. So um, oh. there's also, there's, it's, it's everybody. Everybody knows each other. Back when I was a kid, everybody knows each other. Now everybody's spread out or dead, it, which is just true. As you get older, that's yeah. just true. And so when I was a kid, we would all get together, and they would sit around at my grandparents' trailer in, in uh, Arizona, in Cornville, Arizona, and drink cans of beer and laugh. Tell stories and laugh and laugh and laugh. And it was so cool. I loved it so much. I can, I mean, I can take myself there. I can transport myself there right now in that way just because it felt like something. And I, and I want, it made me want to make others feel that way. And I would also say for in, on the dramatic end in that, in that same way too, that there was a lot of real weird tragedy in my, in my family that is a part of those stories too. So those same sort of emotional stories and the same laughter ended up making this person who just does Mm. this now. 
Have you used any of those stories in any of your plots? Because that sounds like great, a bunch of people sitting around a trailer <laughs> telling stories. I would love to see that. Oh, yeah. Well, you know, and it's weird because had, that hadn't occurred to me just until the other day when I had, somebody was asking me the same question. That image I hadn't thought about until they asked me that. And then you asked me that again. And now, I don't know, probably, playwrights are always mining their past. I hadn't mined that yet, so I might as well steal from myself great. again. Yeah. <laughs> You've written a number of plays that take place over or around holidays, Pilgrim's Progress from the Red Orchid was around Thanksgiving. Mm-hmm. Red Bud was the 4th of July. Uh, you've written a Halloween play. Christmas Bites and Drawing War were Christmas-based stories. What about the holidays attracts you to them as a playtime setting? Well, in, in, in television, when, when I'm teaching television or writing, writing television scripts, there's something called the event and in in story, whether it's a it's a, it's a dramatic show, a dramedy, or, or a comedy, the story is heading toward that event. Like uh, I don't know if anybody watched Gilmore Girls out there, but in Stars Hollow, there's always like the Cherry Fest or the Shirt Fest or like uh, or there's a dinner, and the story is headed there. It's not what the show is about necessarily. It's not what the episode is about, but people are talking about it. It's a framing device, and so holidays can then can work that way too. I'll, and specifically with Pilgrim's Progress, they're trying to get to a Thanksgiving party hosted by uh, one of the father's friends, a longtime friend. So they can drop that in, and it, and it creates a ticking clock. It does uh, some things that help me structurally a lot. So it can be the before the party and after the party. With Drawing War, there's these plate of cookies, Christmas cookies, that this boy is trying to deliver to his dead friend's family and uh, having a really hard time getting there. And the events that surround the holiday are really intriguing to me. And and for Red Bud, I had gone to Red Bud, which is a motocross race in Michigan, and on for the 4th of July. And that's when their big, big uh, event is. So that was in my mind as the thing. And it's, it's, it's insane. And I wanted it to be there... I think that's the reason. And again, nobody's asked me that before, but I have been thinking about it. Why do I keep doing that? And I, 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 gotta, I don't know. It's, 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 uh, it's also helpful because I think it's a frame of reference for the audience is that they can relate because it's a gathering place for conflict or families or love. It can sure. be, it can be it's, a, it's a purpose for gathering. I think that we can all sit in a room and go, yeah, that's, that's how my Thanksgiving is too. Right. Yeah, the, right. most uh, holidays like that are fraught with potential conflicts right. and issues. And they can be very funny. They can be... Uh, there was a, a, a web show called Thanksgiving or something, and it was about this family. Get, it was like eight different episodes, and it was about what was happening, at getting ready, going there, getting to the Thanksgiving dinner, the actual dinner, the fiasco, the football game before the dinner, etc. Mm. But it was all around like eight episodes all on one event. It, it was a web series? I think so. I think I it was called Thanksgiving. It actually had some famous person in it that I liked, and that's why I watched it, but I can't remember who it was. Mm. We have talked to Mark Larson on our show, and I understand that uh, you did a conversation with Mark. He's writing, or has now written, and it should very soon, any minute now, be published, uh, a book called Ensemble, An Oral History of Chicago Theater. Can you tell us a little bit about that conversation with Mark? What kind of areas you guys covered, and uh, what it is we can look forward to in your interview in that book? I actually did a couple because I mean, we met with somebody else too, and um, Mark's a, a, a friend of mine now. <laughs> he and I have become uh, good friends, yeah. and I think we mostly talked about the impact of ensemble and what an ensemble does in positive ways and possibly negative ways to to the work in Chicago. And 
ensembles are either thriving or not so much in Chicago anymore. And at one time they were, that's all there was. When I first came to Chicago, they, that was it. Cause I had growing up Steppenwolf, I had seen Steppenwolf. I had seen the, the, on public television, I'd seen their uh, true West and I was just enthralled and, and wanted to come to Chicago because that's where you could get together as a group and do these things. And everybody was in an ensemble when I got here. And that's not the case so much anymore. They're director-driven ensembles. Uh, there's artistic director and artistic staff-driven, dri- I shouldn't say ensembles, theaters now that uh, produce work from all over the place, that work with all sorts of artistic associates now. That's very different from the way it used to be. And the conversation that Mark and I had is if that's a good if that's a good thing or if that's if that's growth or if that's um, going backwards. I'm kind of t- of two minds when it comes to that. That it's it's a that I'm glad to have the family that I do. But thinking but thinking on it, that's Red Orchid is one of the last surviving ensembles. Sure, but and, sure. And we're all getting older, and having people join the ensemble is difficult because there's a commitment that goes along with joining an ensemble for Trader. The, the show I had in the winter with A Red Orchid, I was at every rehearsal. Directed by Michael Shannon. Directed by Michael Shannon. And we had eight, six ensemble members in the cast. It was our 25th anniversary show. It was an Ibsen adaptation. It was huge. And we moved in, We had one scene in another building, all this other stuff. And I was there all the time, not only as the playwright, but as an ensemble representative. In case, like, the ceiling was leaking, I had to be there to <laughs> yeah. be the person who did this. Sure. I had to give notes as an ensemble member. I had to be the person that actors could go to if they needed something, but also I had to be the playwright on the, on the project too, and I had to be there in support of Mike and the ensemble members. They had to pump me up, I had to pump them up. We well were that way. And then when I did the, sh- when the show that's running now at, at Timeline Theater Company to catch a fish, I was able to be a normal playwright, and it was very nice <laughs> that it freed up a lot of my brain. I could spend some more time with my family. I was there still a lot, like you would do with any play, but I realized the level of commitment that it takes to be a part of an ensemble, or I was reminded, I should say, of the commitment that it takes, maybe because I had the juxtaposition between the two mm. Um, shows. Mm. That's one thing that Mark and I talked about mm. uh, quite a bit. Did you uh, discover anything about Thanksgiving, Frank? I did, yeah. The TV show is called Thanksgiving, which I said, and it had Amy Sedaris and Chris Elliott and John Reynolds, who is on Search Party, if anybody knows the show Search, I love Party. Search Party. He plays Drew. Uh-huh. 2016, I think it was on. I don't know there'll be any more episodes, but there are eight episodes of it. It's I'm pretty gonna fun. Have yeah. to, I'm going to have to check so it out. All right now. I, <laughs> true, true. Every single one of them. Yeah. I have to do a little bit of a shameless plug here. If you'd like to support Booth One in bringing you lively conversation about the arts and scintillating guests like Brett Nevue, right. you can go to our website at www.booth-one.com. That's a dash O-N-E dot com. Go to our website and click on the Donate button. It's quick, it's easy, and it's fully tax-deductible under our 501c3 status as a nonprofit entity. Any contribution would be greatly, greatly appreciated. Brett, we usually finish, well, not usually, we always finish off our podcasts, our episodes, with a segment we call the Kiss of Death. Now, don't get nervous (laughs) about that. It is a celebration of someone who has just passed, could be famous, could be not famous, could be just an everyday person, but somebody that we have found had an interesting life and contributed to our betterment as a whole. Today, we're going to talk about Florence Berman. 
Florence Berman was the first car hop at a place called Superdog. Do you know Superdog? I do, yeah. Yeah. The famed 70-year-old drive-in she founded with her high school sweetheart, business partner, and husband, Maury. Maury Berman. (laughs) Maury. Mrs. Berman, who ate at Superdog at least once a week, died uh, at her home of heart trouble at 92. (laughs) But But 92. I'm telling you, a dog a week. Nobody loves a good hot dog more than me. (laughs) She helped develop the pure beef star of the restaurant's menu, trademarked as, quote, not a wiener, not a frankfurter, not a red hot, but our exclusive Superdog. The drive-in is at Devon in Milwaukee. Uh, the original one. I've been there many times. And has appeared in the 1980s TV shows Crime Story, the movie 16 Candles, and the Netflix drama Sense8. Did you get car hop service when you were there, Brad? Yes. Well, we lived in L.A. for, for a short time, uh, not too long ago. And so we would go to Big Boy a lot and go to the car shows and things like that. And when we got back here, she was wanted that again. She was like, where is the... Where's the French fries kind of stuff. <laughs> Grilled cheese for her because she's a vegetarian. So we went to Superdog, and they have those wonderful hot dog people on top of their building and uh, car hop service. She loved... And those people are called Maury and Flory. They are Maury and Flory. Uh, one, <laughs> now one we is, know why. One is dressed in a sort of Tarzan loincloth. Yes. And the other one has a skirt, and they're they're hot dogs. They're, yep. they're wiener uh-huh. dogs, uh, giant ones. They're 12 feet tall on top mm-hmm. of the Superdog. So eating in, in the car blew her mind. That <laughs> one we, could do that. Yeah, that we that you she could get in the front seat because you know kids are always riding in the back seat. That's all their life. Get in the front seat and eat in the car. And so we get a giant stack of napkins and we, we would just sit there. And we had a we had a blast. And so we go there about four or five times. And it's her favorite French fries. It's her favorite shake. It's her favorite grilled cheese. Uh, in any and she's a connoisseur of all three of those things. And uh, so she would so know. She would know. And and I I love it too. It's you know, making me hungry. I know I'm starving. I, <laughs> I I've been following this whole story you just read since it happened. So wow. <laughs> Maury and Florence met in high school. He was her prom date at von Steuben High School. Aww. The couple founded the drive-in on the northwest side in 1948. Wow. After Maury Berman, a veteran of the Battle of the Bulge. That's weird. Isn't that oh, crazy? <laughs> that's, that's, why you like that's mentioned in the two. I told you it was a wheel. It's it a is. wheel. This whole After he came home from World War II, it was supposed to be a temporary thing, a way to pay the bills while Maury Berman was studying for a CPA exam. But after graduating from Northwestern University, Mrs. Berman had planned to continue working as a substitute teacher oh. in the Chicago Public School District. But their food and kitschy eatery became a hit. This was just supposed to be a temporary thing just to kind of pay the bills for a while. I don't know how you start a restaurant just thinking it's going to be, oh, just for now. To pay the bills, yeah. Yeah. I guess in 1948 you could do that kind of thing, like White Castle. Probably, although you'd think the person who is having a restaurant is going to get more bills than have the restaurant pay the bills. Superdog is included in the book 1,000 Places to See Before You Die. Oh, wow. I'll have <laughs> to go there. In there with the likes of the Eiffel Tower and the Great Wall of China. <laughs> it, is, it, is, it, is, it is so great. And yeah, you, it you, is. Can, you can get, they have merch, too. So you can get a hat. Oh. You can get all sorts of stuff. Super, wow. Superdog still has car hops, so customers can eat without leaving their sweet rides. Um, the neon-lit restaurant glows with a retro charm of an era reminiscent of cruising and hot rods. Yeah, happy days. The menu and slogans are zingy as a squirt of mustard. The specialty is served in a box declaring, this is a quote, this is what it says on their menu. Your super dog lounges inside, contentedly cushioned in super fries, and comfortably attired in a variety of personalized condiments. Its trademark, a pickled green tomato. Wow. 
She grew up in a two-flat at Lawrence and Kimball in Albany Park and was Florence Miska of the Miska Liquors family. Do you remember Miska Liquors? I do remember that name, yeah. Like yeah, a the liquor stores. precursor yep. of Binnie's. And yep. They Foremost were not quite as big boxed. Yep. Yeah. Uh, they operated beverage stores and taverns here in Chicago. Her death brought an outpouring of condolences and memories on social media, including one from Rich Cause. Remember who Rich Cause was? Yeah. Sven, TV's creepy Svengoolie. Svengoolie, yeah. right. Very good. Right. Very good. I know all this stuff. Super Dogs <laughs> founders Flory and Amori watched as their hot dog mascots named for them were hoisted atop a new Super Dog located in Wheeling in 2010. Oh, um, wow. These statues are about 25% larger. Mm. But everything's bigger in the suburbs. I guess so. Yeah. You know, I should mention that I did write a play that's, that has never been produced called Son of Svengoolie. Oh. Uh, that takes place at Halloween. So there we go. It's all it's oh, another, you're mentioning everything. It's yeah. another yeah, holiday it's play. Another holiday. And that's one of the nice things about writing in a place where you've lived for a long enough that's time because you know all those things. Right. And if I can't stop writing them and I cover them all, I'm just going to cover everything. Yeah. She was the first car hop. This is uh, Florence Berman at the restaurant. So therefore, she became a true mentor to future car hops. Mm-hmm. Her daughter said many of them looked very closely to her for advice, for opinions, for help, not just things about Superdog, but about life. Florence Berman. And they, she still owned it, or she was a, her family still, still owns owned it? it. It's yep. now run by the family. We've lost Maury, I assume. Yeah, Maury passed away a number of years ago, okay. but uh, Flory has uh, been around and thriving until oh, just recently. Yeah. yeah, I'm glad you know so much about it, Brad. I do. I love Superdog so much. <laughs> I really do. I, I want to go there almost every day. <laughs> Uh, we may go there this evening, Frank. You should. You should. Uh, I think you should. Maybe on your way home to I'll stop and pick some up. It is, it is on the way. Yeah. It's sort of on the way. Well, okay. it's, make it on the way. I can always make it on the way. Well, thanks to our guest, Brett Nevue, and best of luck with To Catch a Fish. Thank you. Uh, your already outstanding career as a playwright as well and a screenwriter. We so appreciate you taking the time to join us today. Again, visit us at www.booth-one.com for prior episodes and more information about our program and your hosts for Booth One. This is Gary Zabinski. And Frank Taranto. Saying so long and keep listening. <laughs> <laughs>